Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's the last day of January 2023, January the 31st. As always, I'm talking to you from the west coast of the United States on the vast Pacific Ocean. I have to admit, earlier this month, I saw a British, new British film, Empire of Light, a movie, a romantic movie about race and identity um, and mental illness filmed uh, on the south coast of uh, the United Kingdom of England, filmed in Margate, one of those classic um, British uh, or English coastal towns, southern coastal towns, romantic in a rather sad, lonely kind of way. Here we have some photos for people watching from the 19th century. Once upon a time, everyone in England went on holiday to the south coast. Now they go elsewhere. I thought of Margate in the context of my guest today. Eleanor Shearer has a new novel out. It's called River Sing Me Home. And in her description, she talks about uh, splitting her time between London and Ramsgate. Uh, uh, Empire of Light was filmed um, in Margate, but Ramsgate and Margate, they sound alike. And I don't think they're that different as uh, cities, uh, not cities, really towns by uh, the sea. The sea forms a central character, both in a sad, romantic, and dramatic way, also in Eleanor's new book, River Sing Me Home. And she's joining me from uh, near Liverpool Street, a long way from, or at least a train ride from the sea. Uh, Eleanor, what is it about um, the sea that brings out all your complicated emotions? Why do you need to live by the sea? Well, my my mother, who's very into her astrology, would probably say it's because I'm a, a Pisces, but I'm not sure that I accept that explanation. Um, I just love the the way that it makes me feel kind of calm and centered and small, but in a good way. I think that when you're looking out on the the vastness of the ocean, it helps bring that sense of perspective and. Um, as you alluded to, I now am between London and, and Ramsgate. And one of the things that prompted the the move and the splitting the time was actually during the pandemic, my parents are down in Ramsgate and I, like a lot of uh, young people in the UK, kind of fled London and started living with them. And I found that going for walks by the sea to clear my head at this very kind of unsettling and stressful time, um, it really grounded me. So um, then I found I didn't want to, to leave it behind. You have an interesting biography. You're described as a mixed race writer and the uh, a mixed race writer. You're also uh, you work in a think tank, and the granddaughter of Windrush generation uh, immigrants. Of course, the Windrush generation immigrants came on the sea. How much of the sea is rooted in this new book in your first novel, River Sing Me Home? Which, by the way, I. Uh, Eleanor is talking to me from uh, London, but she's about to get on a, a transatlantic aeroplane coming to Boston. This is a Good Morning America pick, so it's going to be one of the hot new novels of uh, 2023. Um, yeah, the uh, the sea plays a big role in the novel, and I think part of it is... Um, 
when you think of the Caribbean, you instantly think of of beaches and the sea because a lot of these islands, you know, my grandparents came from St. Lucia and Barbados, two of the smaller islands, and you really are never far from from seeing the water. But one thing it was really important for me to draw out in this book is that um, there are many commonalities between the experience of African-American and Caribbean slavery, but there are also many differences as well. And one of them is that it wasn't at all easy by any means in America to, to escape and run away to freedom, but there was this strong tradition and hope and dream of the northern route to freedom across land, whereas in the Caribbean, the islands are part of what confines you because you're limited by how far you can go, you, you end up at the sea. And uh, the novel is about a woman who is uh, searching for the children that were taken away from her and sold to different plantations and different islands. So, again, that possibility of being able to search for your family or maintain some kind of connection with them, the sea gets in the way time and again. So, um, yeah, I was interested in in the sea as it, it pertains to the geography of the Caribbean and as it shapes the experience of um, enslaved people there. So there's also, of course, uh, and this is a familiar theme in, in all literature, historically, um, cruelty to the sea. And of course, your book, your new novel, River Sing Me Home, is uh, the story of cruelty, isn't it? It is and it isn't. I um, like to say that this is not a novel about slavery, but, but what about what comes after it. So it's quite deliberate that at the start of the novel, we meet Rachel as she's leaving her plantation. And it's set at this very ambiguous time in the history of the Caribbean when um, the British had passed the Emancipation Act of 1834. But what is not very well known in the UK or elsewhere is that this law stated that uh, enslaved people had to stay on their former plantations and work for their former masters for another six years without pay. So Rachel is in a sense running away, even though she is legally no longer a slave. Um, and I always knew that I didn't want the novel to flinch from the cruelties that Rachel would have experienced as part of her enslavement and continue to experience in a place and, and time that was not uh, always kind to her. But I also wanted this novel to be shot through with a sense of hope and love and joy. So, um, yeah, it doesn't, doesn't flinch from the cruelties, but I hope is also about um, more than just the cruelties. Eleanor, one of the questions I guarantee you'll be asked in Boston or when you do your TV slots is comparing the experience of uh, slavery and post-slavery in, in the West Indies and the United States. What's your sense of that? Of course, this is a novel rather than history, but you've done a lot of reading and thinking, I know, about this subject. Yeah, so one of the things that I think really binds the two experiences together, and in, in fact, some theorists argue binds all experiences of uh, enslaved people everywhere regardless of the time period is this destruction of a family life there's a wonderful book called slavery a social death by Orlando Patterson that's this kind of look at everything from ancient Rome right through to the modern day and he identifies the kind of core feature of slavery as this social death so you're often renamed when people were brought over from Africa, whether they were taken to the United States or they were taken to the Caribbean, they would be denied the right to continue to use their ancestral names. They would be denied the right to speak their ancestral languages and uh, practice their ancestral traditions, although they were able to preserve some of those by practicing them in secret. So you have this destruction of that connection to your ancestry, but then also the destruction of your family life as it pertains to your descendants. So the fact that you were living with the constant threat of children being taken away from you and sold. Um, so 
this is a novel about one woman refusing the act of destruction and going to put the pieces of her family back together and again I think that will resonate with Caribbean readers and it will resonate with American readers as well um in terms of differences I, I've already alluded to one which is this sense of geography and the fact that the Caribbean the experience of being on an island and um confined by that geography is one difference um I think also this is slightly moving aside from the novel and thinking about the, the broader politics um, of the history of slavery and how it's debated and how it's seen today. One of the things that I find frustrating as someone in the UK with Caribbean heritage and something that I hope the novel will be able to do over here on this side of the Atlantic is bring slavery to greater attention because there's such a big difference between the British Empire, where all the places where the atrocities were practiced are no longer part of the country that practiced them, that I think is different in the US. I, do, I think that the debate in the US is still fraught and contentious, but at least it's taking place under one national identity. Whereas I think in the UK, we are often guilty of washing our hands of our history and turning the other way, because actually you're not having to live amongst the kind of physical remnants of the atrocities as you are in the Caribbean. When you go there, you see the old plantations, you see the old plantation houses. So yeah, I wanted the novel to make sure that people in Britain in particular can't, can't forget what happened. Eleanor, you described the novel as a post-slavery uh, novel and um, The Guardian headlines it as uh, surviving slavery. Of course, after the abolition of slavery in America, you have Jim Crow, which some people argue is not that different from slavery. That's not true. Is there an equivalent to Jim Crow, either in the West Indies or in the United Kingdom, in your view, in terms of uh, descendants, shall we say, of slaves? So, yes and no. Uh, in the Caribbean in particular, one of the things that continues to be ambiguous long after even the end of this apprenticeships is what the name was for this period where people had to continue to working on to work on their former plantations without pay, even though they were technically free. Um, even after that ended and people were being paid, I mean, most of the islands of the Caribbean, uh, particularly the British ones, were very densely settled. This novel starts in Barbados, which is where my grandfather was born, and um, it was known as Little England. And it's um, a very flat country. It's very fertile land. So almost every corner of it is covered with plantations that are obviously British owned. And so even after the apprenticeship system ended, there's not really a chance for people to go and find a parcel of land for themselves or exist outside the plantation system. So economic exploitation continued in the Caribbean for for decades and there's actually this um commission from the uh, 1930s the british government when the uh, caribbean colonies were still part of the british empire wants to look into the conditions for laborers in the caribbean and um the findings were so shocking in terms of the material deprivation the poor living conditions the poor wages the exploitation that the publication of this commission, the Moyne Commission, was suppressed until after the Second World War because the British government was so worried about giving propaganda, propaganda to the Nazis. So economic exploitation of the Caribbean absolutely continued, even if it didn't always have the same kind of legal status as something like Jim Crow. Um, and then I think in the, the UK itself, the picture is, is more complicated. You know, my grandparents were part of, um, as you alluded to earlier, the Windrush generation, this big migration from the Caribbean to the UK as part of um, attempts to fill post-war labour shortages. Well, yeah, tell us a little bit more. Which uh, which yeah. year did they come over? 
So they came over in 1957. Uh, the Windrush started, is named after the HMS Windrush, which was the a ship that came from Jamaica in 1948. So that's kind of the start of this big wave of migration. So they're coming in 1957, kind of in the middle. People tend to date the, the Windrush generation up until about the 1970s. Um, and my grandfather came over first and then my grandmother after him. And you know, I think so much about how disorienting the experience must have been for them. They'd never seen fog before. Um, they came from an island, islands of 150, 200,000 people to a city like London that's got millions of people in it. Um, and they didn't face many of the same formal legal restrictions that they would have done in somewhere like the American South at the same time, but they definitely faced discrimination and prejudice and it was hard. It wasn't easy for them. So, Yes, not exactly the same as the history of Jim Crow in the South, but there are experiences of oppression and racism in the UK and in the Caribbean linked to slavery and the experience of empire. Eleanor, we did a show actually uh, last year on Mary Seacole, I think has been voted mm -hmm. one of the great uh, black figures of the last couple of hundred years by uh, the journalist Helen Rappaport. She has a biography in search of Mary Seacole the making of a black cultural icon and humanitarian, a woman who began her life in the West Indies and then uh, became a nurse in the Crimea. She was the kind of, I guess, the West Indian version of uh, Florence Nightingale. Um, how much of your story is simply made up? Did you use historical documents and factual narratives to build River Sing Me Home? I, I very much did. So the novel, the seeds of it were planted actually about 10 years ago when I was a teenager and I went to an exhibition called Making Freedom that was put on by the Windrush Foundation, which is a charity and cultural organisation in the UK. And the point of this exhibition was to foreground all the ways in which Caribbean people resisted slavery, in particular because in the UK, the way that we learn about abolition is that these benevolent white people like William Wilberforce realised slavery was bad and they gave enslaved people their freedom, when in fact that doesn't do any justice to the agency of enslaved people and the ways that they brought about emancipation by all these acts of resistance. And it was in this exhibition that they alluded to very briefly the fact that we know that there really were women who went to put their families back together again after emancipation. And I later read um, the, the book on which uh, this was partially based. So it's an oral history called To Shoot Hard Labour, which is a transcription of um, this man called Samuel Smith's life story that he told to his grandchildren. And he was born in Antigua in the 1970s, sorry, 1870s. But because he lived to be 103, he was able to tell his grandchildren in the 1970s his story. And he remembers his great, great grandmother, a woman called Mother Rachel, uh, who walked from the south of Antigua to the north to try and find her daughter, Minty, that had been taken away from her many years before. Uh, so Mother Rachel, obviously my protagonist is called Rachel, so she was a, a big part of the inspiration for River Sing Me Home. And along with that, I was using historical doc documents also in a background way in terms of um, almost all of the characters in the novel, Rachel's children and the side characters that she meets along uh, this journey across the Caribbean, uh, take their names from the slave registers. So these were these um, government documents where plantation owners had to go and make lists of the number of enslaved people they had and what their names were. And I found them such a, an incredible resource to, to draw out names and to kind of take inspiration. And I guess seeing it as a form of, of witnessing in a way that these are people who are otherwise almost entirely lost to history, that they wouldn't have left any kind of written trace. And 
I, we know nothing about their lives so it's definitely imagination that I'm I'm fleshing them out with but it still felt meaningful to be able to actually attach a real name to them all the same in your in your book how important is form as a novelist for you we had uh, Monique Raffi on Ruff, on the show uh, last mm. year, the author of The Mermaid of Black Conch, another London-based writer with a strong uh, West Indian focus. Um, we talked about magic realism and her craft. Her book um, is uh, another book which has been acclaimed. D do you think of your book, this, this novel, is it? Is it realism? Is it magic realism? Or does it escape categories when it comes to form? I think that's a great question. And I'm a huge fan of uh, Monique Roffey's book. Um, to me, it, it does have a, a slight tinge of magic realism. I think not or anything like the level of Monique Roffey's work or um, other Caribbean authors that I, I very much admire. But I was aware writing this book that to do an incredibly realist account of a woman trying to track down uh, Rachel searching for her five surviving children and the journey takes her across three different Caribbean locations. To recreate this in a realist way would involve a very painstaking slow journey over a number of decades and I didn't want to write that kind of novel, I wanted it to feel a bit more propulsive than that and so I am aware that there's almost a touch of um, something folkloric at times to the book in that Rachel does meet a lot of characters that help her and sometimes it might feel almost help her in ways that feel that kind of stretch credulity. But that was quite a deliberate choice. I did want it to have this this flavour of, yes, the 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 character that you chance upon upon the road and they're able to give you the weapon that you can take with you on your quest and will end up being proving incredibly useful. So um, I was thinking about that sort of magic realist or folkloric tradition when I was writing the book. And I guess that's that's my nod to the, the Caribbean tradition in which I hope I'm writing. Are there particular literary inspirations for you? Yes. So um, actually, the author, Andrea Levy, although she's not a magic realist author, um, she's a British Jamaican writer and she, uh, she's most famous for two novels. Uh, one is called Small Island uh, that is about the Windrush generation coming to the UK. The other is The Long Song, which is about the end of slavery in Jamaica. And I think that both of these novels, what they do so powerfully is take a period in which there is suffering and there is racism and there is difficulty, but still find moments of love, human connection and joy. So she was very much a model for me writing this book, because as I mentioned earlier, I wanted it to have an uplifting feel to it, which is not always easy when you're thinking about the subject matter. So using her as a bit of a model for how can you not paper over or... Uh, obscure the ways in which there was real suffering but how can you also ultimately give a sense of hope in in the narrative yeah we talked about andrea levy we talked about mary seacole we talked about monique raffi we talked raffi we talked about the heroine of your book we talked about yourself of course all women any coincidence there eleanor probably not for for this novel no this is a this is a novel about motherhood and i there are many characters in it that are um, not women. And in fact, it's one of the things I found interesting about writing it. I um, like to write my book starting at the beginning, going through a first draft until I reach the end. And I have a, an outline in my mind of where the, the novel is going. So I started this book knowing Rachel's five children, where they were, what had happened to them, and some sense of the, the ways that she would find each one and who would help her and what that side character would be 
bringing in terms of a, another glimpse of a different part of history. And there was one character who, like all the others, his name draws on on a real historical record. And as soon as I saw the name, I knew I had to have a character based on based on it. And his name is Nobody. And uh, Rachel meets him on a ship that's taking her from Barbados, where she starts to uh, British Guiana. And uh, Nobody was initially meant to be a character that was only around in the novel very briefly. And then would Rachel and um, by that point, she's managed to find one of her daughters would continue on their, their quest. And uh, I found that I loved Nobody so much that I wanted to keep him in a around. And um, without giving too much away about exactly how the book ends, I think I, I, I enjoyed the character. I enjoyed writing him. But also it, it felt right that there would be I, I knew you know who would be in the book at the ending and um had an ending image in mind of this little uh, kind of reassembled family but wanting a, a bit of male energy in there i guess so having this character i suddenly realized actually it makes sense for him to continue with them on the journey so it isn't just this this collection of women rachel and her daughters it's actually got some some male energy in there as well nobody of course implies a disassociation with rooted communities in your um, description of yourself. I'm not sure if you wrote this, but in the Random House description, you're described as a mixed race writer and the granddaughter of Windrush generation immigrants. Uh, but you did uh, not, but you, you got your master's degree in politics at Oxford University, which is the institution of the elites. You work for one of the top think tanks um, in the country. At what point do you think Historically, does the the Windrush generation get washed out of you? I mean, that might be true not just for West Indians, but for all immigrants, whether they're Jewish or Black mm. or, or Asian. At what point does the experience as a writer, in particular, of the history of slavery and suffering and injustice, at what point does that become just academic? Yeah, I, th I think it's a really interesting question and one I have grappled with on a personal level, partly because of the way I look as well. So I, I pass for white in most contexts, um, but my mum is is very visibly black and my grandparents, my, my grandmother was quite fair-skinned, fair but my grandfather was also very obviously a black man when he came to this country. Did you ever see um, the movie Passing? Yes, I did. And I've read the, the book as well. That's so, a wonderful, um, wonderful, uh, a wonderful movie. Yes. Yeah. And um yeah, those questions of passing and what it means to pass all things that I have grappled with a lot. Um, I think that, f so for me personally, a lot of it does come down to this sense of something that is being passed down through generations. And I can't speak to, I, I don't have children myself, but I feel like when I do have children, I will want to impress upon them the kind of, experiences of our family that have been different not in a not in a way to cultivate some sense of superiority or difference in them because I think by this point we will have been many generations settled in this country I imagine any children of mine will feel quite firmly secure in their Britishness but I think it's important for them to remember that that Britishness can arise in different ways and so I certainly wouldn't want them to forget about where we came from um but in, in the more general sense, my, my master's degree was in um, the case for reparations for Caribbean slavery. And I know that in 
the debates around reparations it is a very live question you know people like to say somewhat flippantly but still you know in the UK for example should we be getting reparations from France for the Norman conquest and I think there's probably not a scientific answer it's a more you know it when you see it but I think we do all recognize the communities where there has been this passing down of history and tradition that regardless of where you may have ended up in the world if you've been displaced that continues to play a significant role in people's lives and that produces I think or, or, or grounds a group's claim for reparations in a way that there just isn't a community you can point to in the UK for example that it continues to feel aggrieved by the Norman conquest so a slightly roundabout answer but I think that yes it's hard to draw a precise line and say well at this generation we know that people descended from the Windrush will no longer feel like it's a significant part of their lives but um, it's probably a, a, a gradual fading but also in surprising ways these traditions can continue to retain a lot of significance possibly longer than we expect that they would. And presumably your association with the Windrush generation isn't just about suffering or injustice it's about joy and music and food yes. and general cricket culture I mean yes. a, a world that um, is hard to replicate yes yeah exactly and um, it's one of the things uh, again diff subtle differences between I guess race and heritage and all these different overlapping but slightly distinct distinct um, concepts because I in many ways have a very different experience from say my mother who is moves through the world as a black woman but then we do share this very strong cultural sense of being Caribbean that is distinct from the way that we look and the way that we people treat us and I don't I I'm very proud of that that side of myself um and yeah I wouldn't want to lose touch with it how does your mother feel about living in Ramsgate a bit chilly compared to the West Indies it is. It is a bit chilly and she's getting to that time of life where she's kind of complaining bitterly about uh, her parents ever having made the journey over. But no, she she likes it too because she also likes to be by the sea and um, likes to be close to me as well. It's been really special actually to share this journey of... Um, writing this book and she was the book's first reader in its in its entirety and um one of the things I think actually going back to that question of kind of immigrants and ge the multiple generations I think I know from speaking to to friends of mine that it's not an uncommon experience for um my grandparents generation and uh, there are a lot of um people that came over from different parts of the British Empire where they had this attitude of being almost more English than the English. They'd grown up in colonial systems. They'd grown up with this idea that Britain was the mother country. And for them, the goal was really just to assimilate and to become British and recognised as such. And so lots of people of my mother's generation grew up with a sense that there wasn't necessarily anything valuable or worth preserving in your Caribbean heritage. And it was all about just staying laser focused on being becoming British and becoming part of the British establishment. And it's only when you get to my generation that I guess you have the security and the freedom to think no, I am really interested in in connecting with my heritage. I really do want to hear these stories about where my grandparents came from. And so I think it's been lovely to see with my my mother and my aunt as well, kind of getting to share with them this sense of reconnecting with our roots, rediscovering what's valuable, interesting, important about our Caribbean background. Yeah, it's a wonderful story. And the story of the book is wonderful. It's very hard to get a first novel published, especially these days and I'm not sure if you've won the jackpot, but by being uh, uh, being a, a Good Morning America pick, that's a, it's a big deal. You're coming over to America. Any advice, uh, Eleanor, for first time 
novelists, a lot of people who want to write a novel think they need to go to creative writing school. You got a master's degree in politics. Um, any, any, any advice on your experience as a first-time writer? How long did this book take you? Well, as I say, the idea was kicking around for almost 10 years, but actually between sort of seriously putting pen to paper and um, then having a, a draft that I was able to get an agent with, that was about uh, nine months. Um, Which requires some patience and willingness to, to accept rejection, I assume. It, it does, and I think I, I have really enjoyed... Uh, getting to meet other writers as part of this process has been one of the real highlights. Um, so I'm always slightly cautious of recommending sort of cast iron advice because I'm fascinated by how, how everyone's processes are very different. But for me, what worked was writing every day. And I spent quite a long time um, waiting for inspiration to strike or not writing when I didn't feel in the right kind of mood for it. And it was actually only when I said, you almost have to treat it like like work. You have to set aside a certain amount of time. For me, it was actually a, a word count rather than a, a amount of time. I wrote 500 words every day until I had a full draft. And that sense of keeping momentum, um, not going back and tinkering as well. I think that was a big thing that would have would have held me back because I can be a bit of a perfectionist. And so if I just spent time tinkering with the day's words before and trying to make them perfect, I never would have finished the thing. So just, yeah, really had this attitude of I'm going to start at the beginning. I'm going to keep going until I get to the end and just see what happens. And it was terrifying at times. I didn't know if I would sort of run out of steam at 10,000 words and then you've barely even got a novella, let alone a novel. But um, and uh, that 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 discipline to keep going, even when it's hard, even when you feel like it's the worst thing that's ever been written. But just having the faith that you will come out the other side with something that is better than a blank page that you can then do the real work of, which is editing and reshaping and whipping it into some kind of publishable shape.